When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kelly Spivey, your host for the channel today, and I'll be talking to Jeannie Firth about her new book, Feeding New Orleans, Celebrity Chefs and Reimagining Food Justice. Jeannie is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant with Visions and was part of the founding staff of Grodat Youth Farm in New Orleans. Welcome, Jeannie. It's so great to have you here today to talk about your book. Oh, thanks, Kelly. So I want to get started by kind of getting to know you and your background a little bit better. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book and, and why it's important to you? Yeah, thanks. So I'm on the founding staff team, as you mentioned, of Grodat Youth Farm. And I had moved to New Orleans um, after having been in London and San Francisco. I grew up in Kansas City. I moved to New Orleans about five years after Katrina and the flooding from Katrina. And I was on the team that like helped start this, what I you know think is a pretty amazing um, nonprofit um, that hires teenagers to grow food. And it's very consuming, right? So like starting a new organization... Um, I was also new to the city, right? I'd never lived in that part of the country, let alone in New Orleans. And starting the new organization was just so, um, I don't know, overwhelming, exciting, everything, like kind of the no life sort of situation of just throwing yourself into this project. And I was really curious about what we were doing, kind of like wanting this space of pause, reflect, step back and say, okay, so how has this been going over the last five years or whatnot of launching this organization in the context of trying to understand how the city had shifted and changed post-Katrina. So, you know, five years out, 10 years out, 15, soon it'll be 20, right, in twenty in 2025. So when we hit those markers, like, okay, what is happening to the city in general? And then what are organizations like ours a part of? And so it really came out of that desire just to like take a pause, like practice the pause, reflect, And I have this background um, as an academic in really thinking about international development and gender, thinking about food systems within that, anti-hunger mobilizations, wealth and inequality. And so it did feel like this opportunity of like, wow, I've been on the ground floor in a post-disaster conflict, starting a new organization, trying to solve social problems in the way that we decided to. How's that been going? Um, And so the book really came out of this desire to kind of mobilize the networks I was a part of already, and then also expand it and look both regionally and nationally and internationally around kind of what trends were happening. And so that's how you'll see in the book, like this whole thread around celebrity humanitarianism that was happening in New Orleans, but is also 
you know, that's a national phenomenon, that's an international phenomenon. So there were ties to what we were seeing that are very specific to New Orleans, but then also these much larger trends. Yeah, it was just that desire to, um, yeah, see what we were doing and, and make space to like really reflect on it. Yeah, it sounds very self-reflective and and thoughtful. Thanks, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually going to read a quote from your conclusion. We're gonna we're not gonna start at the end. <laughs> we'll start with the first chapter, but it is just such a beautiful way, I think, of phrasing what the book is about, which is. Uh, you say what happens when we turn our collective humanitarian gaze, not to gifts, heroes and selfies, but to the history of the land, the rightful share, social movements and collective efforts. Mm. I really, really love that. Um, and honestly did not know how complex giving could be. <laughs> and, and just really so many things to navigate about, but centering it, sort of in this geographic way is a really lovely way of thinking about it much differently than I think it has been considered in the past. Mm, thanks, Kelly. Yeah, I love that you highlight this, like the idea of the complexity of giving, because I do think that there's a way in which so often sort of a public dialogue and even my own engagement with this has been like, sort of, um, there's like a simplicity around like, oh, yeah, like, I, I, there's, there's a way in which the framing around giving can seem sort of uncomplicated, like, oh, yeah, this is about generosity and giving back. And then you start to dig in to the morals and the ethics, let alone really looking at all the work that's been done from anthropology, sociology, philosophy. Giving is loaded with complexities. Right. And it is in, in my in my understanding, it is all about power and race and class and gender and wealth and inequality, right? Like it's all there. And that's not often how we talk about it. <laughs> so that's, that is one of the intentions is like, let's talk about these things. Yeah. I think that's a great way to actually segue from the conclusion back into chapter one. <laughs> great. Well, that, well, that. <laughs> well, you, you start to talk about, I truly didn't know how many different types of philanthropy and charity and gifts. There's, there's all this terminology surrounding it that I, I think I, I'm not sure. It feels like it, it hides things that we maybe don't want to hide. Um, but can you talk a little bit about kind of the first chapter, what, what this shift for philanthropy is and, you know, why you said a little bit earlier, but why new Orleans? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I'll say one thing too, Kelly, just like around this idea that there's so much specificity of language around gift giving, philanthropy, what kinds of philanthropy, voluntary giving. And I do think, and I, and you know, and there are parts of the book where I try to get pretty granular on, okay, so what do we mean when we say these things? And I like don't want to lose the forest for the trees in that. So I do really like, um, I quote Erica Bornstein, who's an anthropologist um, who's done a lot of work around giving. And she sort of talks about sort of getting too, especially discipline specific, right? Like I'm using this discipline of international development. So I only think about aid transfers and she's, she's, I, I feel like an invitation from her to say, let's think about universes, the world of giving, like, let's not think of these as distinct separate entities. And I really appreciate that invitation because I do think that it, it loosens up 
um, some of these categories that actually may limit our analysis. And I think that that's one of the things that like, definitely it's like an inner, it's a, um, a more interdisciplinary perspective, right? Where it's like, okay, let's think about these trends um, in a way that is a little bit more open. So just to say that, like the, the, the terminology is dense. And um, I think that thinking about the universe of giving changes something. Um, yeah, so in, in New Orleans, I definitely, like, I think it's really important to think about, okay, so what happens um, post-disaster, post-flooding, what changes I've seen in the city? And I try to really outline, outline those, right? Some of the changes that have happened in New Orleans. I mean, let alone, right, my own placement in that as a white person who was not from New Orleans, who came and started in, in a nonprofit organization. And as, you know, as I know, this idea that um, there weren't very many nonprofits before the flooding. So now there are so many, right? There's so many nonprofits. Um, even just the way in which like something like Give NOLA Day, which is one day a year when the Greater New Orleans Foundation sponsors this, you know, give in any amount to all of these organizations. I mean, I think, I mean, it's not uncommon to get a hundred emails, even just for me on that day when, when organizations are fundraising. And that's, that's new, right? That's, that's a post-Katrina reality. Um, this sort of, giant proliferation of nonprofits. And part of my desire in that was to think longer term, right? So there's so much research that comes immediately after a disaster. So reflection on like what happened and why. Um, And then this idea that we need more studies that are looking 10 years, 15, now 20 years out to track these changes. And part of my argument is that that's particularly important when thinking about celebrity humanitarianism because these are such usually media-laden, splashy launches of these projects, right? So like, I mean, I'm just thinking about um, Brad Pitt's Make It Right Foundation when there were all those homes in the Lower Ninth Ward covered in, um, or they were representational, right? They were these structures in hot pink, I think was the color, and all of these homes that were going to be built right where the levee had been breached, right? Okay, yeah, like that that was all over. It made international news, right? People still ask me constantly about this thing that happened, you know, what? That's at least a dozen years ago, probably more at this point. And where is that now, right? Like where is that media intensive, really kind of large scale public announcement and imagery that gets created, what happens all these years later? And so that is part of the intention of the book too, is to think about, okay, projects that get launched, where do they go? Um, what happens over time? And I think that that's just in general, right? And, and something to study, particularly around the celebrity projects, which get so much attention on the front end, but also just in general, any of these post-disaster projects where there's a, a real lack of understanding, like, okay, well, what never takes off to begin with? right? Literally, like what are speculative projects that never happen? Because there were a lot of those in New Orleans. And then even with the ones that do happen, um, what are the long-term implications? If any, you know, what happens? Yeah. Like you can't just swoop in and, and be a hero and then leave and expect things to continue doing better. Exactly. Yep. And that the, that the research has tended not to really look long-term, right? Um, You know, there are some ethnographies and work coming maybe more out of anthropology that are, for example, sticking with one family that evacuated during Katrina and saying, okay, what has your life outcomes been like now, right? But in the most part, a lot of that fades, right? Even though you have these 
huge events that are truly life altering. I mean, altering not just to people's lives, but also to the way the city looks, right? Like New Orleans has, by latest count, 100,000 fewer Black residents than before the storm. That's huge demographic change, right? Like massive. And those sorts of changes over time are so linked, right, with trends around who is the city for, how has the city changed, how has the city redeveloped? So that that is one of my key interests. Yeah. And you also mentioned, which you bring up throughout the book, is the idea of New Orleans having this like authentic culture that we want to preserve. And that's a really, I I think authenticity is just a really loaded word (laughs) in general. Um, But I think that also kind of lends itself to this sort of study where we're protecting something, but we can't really define it. Mm, Yeah, beautifully said. Right, right. That authenticity is so fraught. And yet it is also sort of one of those words that like gets used constantly to mean something. And then you scratch it a little bit and it's like, well, what does it mean this or this? I mean, I even have that. Um, I think I quote around Tunde Wei, who's a Nigerian born chef, um, although he doesn't always use the chef title for a lot of strategic reasons. Um, but he talks about opening up a, um, a restaurant in St. Rock Market, which got redeveloped in New Orleans, and um, how I think he had, I forget what was on the menu, but I think it was more traditional Nigerian cuisine, and he just kept getting pressure to put a fried chicken sandwich on the menu, like that that's what tourists wanted, really, and it was like a tourist-focused redevelopment, right? Um, And he had his own feelings about how that felt to do, and I think eventually he did it, and then the shop closed after a while probably not for lack of success. It was wildly popular. So I don't even know if that's what it was, but probably his own, he's got like so many other projects to do and to focus on. Right. Um, But just this way in which something like that, and, and, you know, that's something that comes up in the book so much too, is this idea of like, what does it mean to represent authenticity to tourists really? And that so much of the post Katrina redevelopment plan was like, let's make, let's make this, um, culture, our commodity. Let's make culture the thing that is that is good for business. And so maximizing that really is in this exact venue that you're talking about, I think, which is, well, we have to represent something authentic because that's what's going to get people to come here. But then what do, you, what do local people who make food, right? Chefs and cooks, what, how, what do they want to be cooking and how do they want to be representing that? Both with a long tradition in New Orleans, but then also a whole lot of other influences that are culinary and um, important that definitely may not get represented in that kind of tourist imaginary of what they think they're going to get when they go to New Orleans. Yeah, I think St. Rock is a really good example of that just because of when I was there, you're kind of in a different world when you go in the market. It's like a very clean and polished and just consumery feeling space. And then you step outside and you're like, this is a totally different world out here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so, so I, I wonder the likelihood of people going in St. Rock and spending money there and then going back into the neighborhood and spending money there. Right on. Yeah. Those kind of questions for sure. It's like what got redeveloped and for whom is still a key piece of the question, right? Like what got developed, what got redevelopment 
redeveloped? Who does it serve? And part of my lens is that is literally like what restaurants got reopened and who do they serve, right? Like what was, because um, there has been so much celebration about New Orleans food scene thriving post-Katrina, right? This restaurant renaissance idea. Also that there have been larger culinary influences because there's been so many people, particularly from um, South and Central America that have opened restaurants, right? So there is this idea that the city's food scene is thriving and diversifying in all these exciting ways. And it's like, okay, who is it really for, right? And, and one of my key points is like, what's the working conditions in the restaurant industry? Like, how are people doing? Like, what are wages like? What are the environmental impacts like, right? Because along with the celebration of that, I think that there's been a lot of questions that aren't really asked about some of the exploitations that are just pretty endemic within the restaurant industry in New Orleans, but all over. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good segue into the second chapter. We can talk a little bit about um, just the context of power structure and social justice and how how do we define giving and how do we perform giving within those uh, structures? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These are the questions. These are the questions. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, and food to me is such an important lens for these questions around giving because we got to eat, right? People eat. And in a place like New Orleans, there's this understanding that, um, at least for tourist culture, but even for so many locals that I interviewed, that food is the thing that people uh, spend time and money on, right? That it is it is important to um, value New Orleans culinary world, even for locals, right? That's something that obviously gets marketed for tourism, but locals talk about this. And the way that this intersects with so much of what I was looking at is this idea of um, raising money through events, right? Raise money through um, what might be called in Lily Chuliaraki's work, ceremonial humanitarianism, these events that get put on. Um, but I really see them as another consumerism, right? So consumerism with for a cause. And this idea that um, places can raise money through doing events. And so, and, and this is for, you know, restaurants put on events all the time, right? Like whether it's just every night opening their doors or special events. But then this merger with philanthropy where organizations and nonprofits are trying to raise money through doing special events. And so I think that it becomes this like, well, yes, people are being charitable by buying a ticket and they're like really enjoying the lavish fundraiser that they're going to, that their ticket was spent on. And a lot of my interviews with locals talk about this. So people who were involved with like the John Besh Foundation or something that they um, you know, are going to spend money on food anyways, because food is, I think one, one woman describes it as like, food is what I'm about. It's what my family's about, right? So this is what we do. And now there's this John Besh Foundation um, that, you know, does this nonprofit and charitable work. So if I can spend money and go to a John Besh event that is going to at least in part support his foundation, I certainly feel better about doing it. And so this is where like all these mediations of people's own sense of, um, you know, wanting to contribute and give back and, and, and be generous and also people's guilt about the amount of, um, expense and wealth that oftentimes it takes to participate in high-end culinary culture. So I do, you know, they're kind of like balancing these feelings of, um, you know, that it's a really proactive, great way to do. And then some people talk about it being a way to, yeah, feel less guilty (laughs) about 
a really expensive, lavish meal as well. Yeah, and I think it's interesting um, putting chefs at the center of of these discussions. You know, you touch on it throughout the book. Is is what is the authority? What expertise do they have beyond cooking to talk about these structures and try to uh, quote unquote fix things? Um, And, and, you know, you mentioned John Besh, Emeril is, is also really well known for that. Um, How is did chefs kind of rise to the top because New Orleans is such a food city? I think so. I mean, I, I try to make this argument that that New Orleans was already a place known for its food, right, for a really long time. Um, and that there already had, so many chefs already had a national profile. And then when Katrina hits, they really get involved on the ground of doing food aid, right? Doing, like, literally you know, feeding like John Besh, feeding people in a Walmart parking lot, like making giant pots of red beans for first responders. And so like all of this and then small restaurants, right? Like all these little small restaurants that were feeding people for free or were like struggling to keep their doors open. So you have all of that. And then I think that to kind of what I was hearing your question too, is around this like idea of chef's authority. I think that there's something that happened, this idea of culinary capital, right? This idea that that chefs have this are imbued with this special form of culinary capital as authentic quote unquote ambassadors of the city who then were helping rebuild the city both through doing food aid, but then also reopening their restaurants, which like restaurants reopening was a huge deal, right? Cannot be undercut how important it was to the sort of like psyche and soul of the city when restaurants started to reopen, like just people talk about it being so emotional that they could like go out to eat in this place where they had lost their homes and their businesses and their friends weren't back, you know? So all of that's happening. So they've got this culinary capital and then there's this push, right. That I'm naming that I was a part of to create formal nonprofits, right? Like this was a thing that was happening in new Orleans, post Katrina, post disaster. And there's, there's a, I actually don't get into this too much, but there's a lot of ideas around like, well, why did that happen? Why did we get this huge influx of nonprofits, including that all these celebrity chefs started their own foundations, right? So many chefs opened up formal 501c3 tax exempt foundations. Well, what is that? Because restaurants, you know, have a long history of, of giving back in the city of like, you know, hosting events and giving out gift cards and doing all these things. So like why all of a sudden these formal nonprofits that chefs are also a part of. And I do think that's to your point around this idea that chefs have kind of had an, um, you know, that they've been positioned in a way really strongly to be leaders in those kind of philanthropic efforts for all of these reasons And then that question that you brought, which is like, are they really (laughs) the best people to be intervening in social issues, right? Are they really? And that's a debate. I mean, and I, you know, I I really have heard how from kind of corporate social science, kind of corporate social responsibility, corporate CSR thinking, there's this idea that really aligning a business's philanthropy is a good thing, right? Like you should, 
you do what you do best in your philanthropic efforts, right? So like in those ways, a lot of what the chefs in New Orleans have done to like focus on culinary training for young people, um, doing, you know, job skills training in schools or at nonprofits around the restaurant and service industry, right? Like those things seem like a slam dunk. And the way that I kind of, you know, what I was experiencing as an ethnographer was the complications of the inequalities of the restaurant industry. And that oftentimes it has been these, you know, white male chefs starting foundations that are, I think, oftentimes reproducing the same inequalities that are so endemic within their own restaurants and their own restaurant group corporations within their philanthropic systems, right? That they're not separate. And so it's sort of like this... um, complexity that like, yeah, you're doing what you know best. And what you know know best is like, has this deep me too and sexism that's happening, the racism, like low wages, right? That, the, that these things are also part of their, that it's part of their philanthropy. It's not only part of the um, uh, cultures of their restaurants, right? It's also the cultures of their philanthropic work. Yeah, it's kind of a tend to your own house first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Um, and and you do mention you know i think uh, probably i think it's chapter 3 you know you mentioned that this has been going on sans uh foundation for a long time you know you have susan spicer and you have um obviously lee chase and the role that dookie chases has played in new orleans since it's been open um and those aren't necessarily what we would think of as philanthropic work. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What is it about this idea of philanthropy that needs a formal 501c3 nonprofit rated on charity navigator, whatever it is, right? Like rather than as you're naming these kind of deeply embedded institutions that had all of these different ways in which they were social and political entities, right? that they have a politics and a way that they engage. Um, and I know this even from interviews, yeah, with like Susan Spicer and some, you know, small business owners, a couple of the black women that I interviewed that run like food truck businesses, they would talk about how part of their understanding of giving back is like hiring formerly incarcerated people, hiring grandmothers, like people who wouldn't necessarily be employable and more it by a lot of other standards, right? But they're like, that is part of why I run my business is to be able to be a good place for people to work and for people to have opportunities that wouldn't elsewhere. And that looks really different, right, than, than um, opening up a school garden and having your name on the school garden. Like, that's just a very different understanding of what your role is within a community. So there's a lot of that difference, too. Yeah, as opposed to, um, I believe, uh, the Besh restaurant group disaster solutions. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, yeah. So this is a curious thing. So he, there is an entity that I tried so hard to research. So please somebody go out there and research this, but that there was a formal entity that got created that is Besh disaster solutions, which was doing, um, taking in money for food aid. Right. And there was food aid work happening through Besh. And I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure what this entity did, how much money it was taking in, like any of the specifics of it. And it is not that it's not that that group ever formally merged into the eventual foundation. Right. It seems like that kind of stayed uh, from what I can tell as more of an income generation stream. 
for the restaurant group, right? And this is some of the work that came from food writers like Kim Severson at the New York Times, seeing these links between Besh's connection to getting federal contracts for disaster aid, the Besh restaurant group, and then being able to expand their businesses within New Orleans, right? Really expanding the group after they were getting these federal contracts of aid, right? Um, but that it's not like that entity, Best Disaster Solutions, necessarily even was related at all to the Besh Foundation, the JBF that got created, which was the um, entity that ran Chefs Move, the group that sent young people um, to culinary school and then did internships within the restaurant group. So yeah, there are many different avenues of what aid and charity can look like. And that, and one of them is what you just named that sort of like formal disaster aid. Um, yeah, the whole, just the whole foundation, the way that all, everything is set up is really interesting. And I would really like to talk about chef's move because I find it interesting that the goal is to kind of cultivate culinary talent but then where does that leave the, I believe there's scholarship recipients, grant recipients, um, where, what happens after that? Like they send them to culinary school, they bring them back to work in these kitchens. But then as we were talking about before, these kitchens aren't necessarily the best places for right. everyone. Yep. Yeah. Right. I interviewed, I think that at the time there had been at least 12 graduates um, from Chef's Move. And I interviewed, I think, all of them at that point. And there have been more since in the newer iterations of the foundation. Um, but they really vary on their experiences. Um, and this idea of did they stay in culinary work or not? Right. Um, but to your point, you know, some of the things that were troubling that that came up a lot in interviews were the idea that so, so, Bet, so, so Chef's Move explicitly had a focus on race. So this idea that um, young people of color needed credentials, right, needed formal culinary training in order to come back to the New Orleans restaurant world and participate in it in a way. And, you know, people like John Besh, who's a white chef, saying, I realize that um, the people that are in the majority of prestigious kitchens and who's winning James Beard Awards at that time and thing, are white men, most of whom are not from New Orleans, and that needs to change, right? And so he really did have this, you know, at least in their rhetoric, this ex, you know explicit focus on race. They use the term minority, um, but it did, you know, not necessarily race or class, uh, or no, they would talk about race, but not necessarily class or gender or other, you know, um, excluded identities. So what would happen is young people would go to culinary school, come back, they had a required internship at the Best Restaurant Group. And now there's been this, you know, very large um, kind of reckoning with sexual harassment and the Me Too movement within the Best Restaurant Group, right? Um, and so those things that were happening within restaurants were what young people that won the scholarships and were doing their internships were experiencing, right? And so they were coming back into these environments where they were, um, yeah, being harassed at work, right, on their internships and not knowing 
who to turn to. And, and this is the larger story about what was happening at the Best Restaurant Group, that there wasn't a formal HR department. And so scholarship winners would go to the foundation and not know, could they report their, you know, harassment to people that ran the foundation, like the executive director of the foundation, or, you know, what, what structures were even in place for them to address it, which is the larger problem that was happening there. Um, but then you also see how, yes, people... You know, some of these winners decided to launch their own small businesses, right? Like become a pastry chef, launch your own cake business. Others um, went on to be on top shelf, right? To like be in some of these kind of celebrity worlds around um, culinary, the culinary world and gourmet culinary culture. And then you have others who left cooking, right? Who don't do it. And then there are others who like found really stable but non-glamorous jobs, as they would talk about it. And they would, um, you know, cook. I, I interviewed one person who cooks for they, like several people who do catering or who work for um, like an airline company that that does food for the airlines. Right. And these are like stable, maybe more nine to five jobs. Right. With a salary and benefits, but they're not glamorous. And so even in my interviews with um, some of those you know, former scholarship winners, they would kind of be like, oh man, like I haven't really done what the foundation wanted me to do. The foundation wanted me to become this like rock star chef <laughs> who's going to become the new face of New Orleans. And instead I'm just like paying my bills and like taking care of my kids by working this like nine to five cooking job kind of thing. And they, and even in those terms, right? Like this distinguishing between being a chef and being a cook starts to come up, right? Yeah, like I think my question there is why why is one more valid than the other? Oh my gosh, do you have thoughts on this? <laughs> I, want to get, I know you know this world. <laughs> um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I I think that you know, especially when you're talking about rebuilding New Orleans, it, it's so hard to pull apart the business aspect of things from just living life. Like I, I think chef is a really weird term that people continually like to say is, um, you know, it's really more about being in charge of the kitchen. It's more about, you know, the brigade system and all of these things. And it, it's not what it used to be, but if that's the case, then why does it matter who we're calling a chef and who we're calling a cook? I think that there's, I think it's great that they send the scholarship recipients to culinary school. Those are extremely valuable skills, but I think that skills that you develop just living your life and learning on the job are also very valuable and maybe not valued at the same level. Um, I, I mean, for me, I think cooking food for an airline is just as valuable as doing a eight course tasting menu, <laughs> probably, probably more so, honestly, if, if people are, you're reaching more people, you're, you're feeding more people. Um, yeah, I could, I could go on all day. You're making me think too of like why they're, you know, and cause it, cause even in the way that like somebody like Besh Foundation presented their work, there was so much focus on the culinary scholarship, right? Like getting sent to these elite schools like the ICC in New York or, um, 
And to your point too, like this idea that actually so much of what you learn is like on the job training or these other skills. And they're, even the foundation chose not to really focus on that, right? You know, and when I talk to past winners, they talk a lot about their internships, right? Actually, they talked, honestly, I'd have to look, but they talked so little about formal education in school, right? They would be like, oh, it was amazing to be in New York or something, you know, but then what we really spent the bulk of our time talking about was like what it was like to work in a kitchen, right? Like what it was like to work at one of these places Um, and the importance of that training, right? Um, And yeah, there's so many things you just said. I I also think this idea too that, um, mm, I don't know. I mean, they they have values. Each thing has its own value in its own space. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love going and having a beautifully prepared meal, multiple courses, like that's lovely, but I equally love grabbing a po' boy during a parade off of somebody's like grill (laughs) that they have just wheeled up in there you know like there's they're both to me they are both equally useful and equally um needed Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah yeah maybe this is to your point too a bit about this idea of like you're feeding people right whether you whatever whatever role you're in if you're cooking, you're feeding people. And I, I really heard some of those reflections from, from people who had stepped away from more like big name kitchens and were cooking in other capacities. And so there's, there's a lot of research on this, I think from Deborah Harris and Patty Giffrey's work. Um, they have a book called Taking the Heat, which is really about gender in formal kitchens. And some of their research that I really found too, was this idea that, um, you know, women enter culinary school at the same rate as men they sort of start to drop off in formal restaurant work, but then over time they like are the most likely to leave, you know, the formal restaurant industry. And some of my interviews with people that were like that were like, I found other ways to cook for people. First of all, because of discrimination within the restaurant industry, I would argue, right. That it has been so much harder on women, people of color, women of color to get the recognition that they, that they want and deserve, um, and the access to capital to open restaurants, all of these structural and cultural reasons that access has been denied, but then that people find it actually really meaningful to cook in other capacities. So you hear people talk about, Oh, I became a chef teacher instead because I like really actually love working with young people. And I was sick of like slinging tacos at these festivals or whatever out of the food truck or that, um, some of the people who formally went more into nonprofit work, like this chef who had had several successful restaurants that she had started, um, I think in Chicago and then moved to new Orleans and started working for the food bank and like started cooking. She's like, I make so much food for people who need it all day in and all day out. And like her own journey around not understanding why that isn't appealing to more chefs, right? Like why there haven't been as much of that, um, excitement or emphasis on doing that kind of work. Like, you know, she just loved it. Like she, she obviously was like in a whole new phase of her career and just so glad to be engaging with food in a different way than what it had been. And maybe that's because she had already had a whole other career. Like it felt so great to transition, but that's not uncommon, right? These ways in which particularly women have moved into other sectors of the restaurant world, you know, I would say like, because largely based on the they, they cite the incompatibility 
of work-life balance, and then also the discrimination that's experienced within formal kitchens. Yeah, and I mean, thinking again about New Orleans specifically, what do you do with the tourism aspect of everything? Um, I know that, you know, that's been incredibly, it was incredibly important pre-Katrina and it certainly was important post, but how has that shaped kind of giving and eating and, and everything really in the city? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is so much, you know, there was this report, um, that had been done across the state of Louisiana and it had a big emphasis on New Orleans right before Katrina hit. And um, I think it was like the Louisiana cultural economy report. And um, one of the key elements of the cultural economy that was determined was the culinary, you know, economy Um, that that cultural asset was going to be one of New Orleans's biggest assets to market for tourism. And that happened before the flooding, right? That happened before the levee breach. And then right after, you know, as rebuilding starting, it's like that report gets taken up as like the mantle of rebuilding. Like, okay, here's what we've got. We have our culture, Um, you know, and and it, it can't be understated how important those cries to rebuild New Orleans, like focused on culture, right? Like they really did. Cause there was, I don't know if you remember at the time, but you know, in 2005, there was so much dialogue, at least on the national stage around like, well, should New Orleans even be rebuilt? You know, there was this rhetoric and, um, and a lot of the sort of mandates and emphasis on, yes, let's rebuild were like, this place matters culturally, right? As well as, you know, for all the people that live there, <laughs> right? But this, um, this way in which the cultural economy you know, particularly the idea that tourists could come and be in a place that was authentic, as we've talked about, right? This authenticity idea. Um, And that that was part of the whole rebuilding strategy. And so cultural economy really gets picked up um, within the city's master plans, within the way that the, um, all of the, there's several various nonprofits that market the city that do like the kind of tourism board sort of work. And we see these campaigns like, um, Louisiana, where culture means business, these sorts of campaigns, and a lot of them mobilized chefs. So full page ads, you know, and airline magazines of chefs talking about, um, you know, gumbo, of course, gets brought up, like, you know, these gumbo metaphors, but then also the way in which they um, invite tourists to come and taste New Orleans and like taste the authenticity of the city. Um, It it was a huge emphasis. And I, I, I actually think that the you know, the COVID-19 pandemic that has continued, you know, and evolved, this moment really illuminated how much emphasis had been put on tourism. Um, when all of a sudden, you know, there's this brand new airport that opened, right? Like the New Orleans um, airport, I forget exactly when it opened. So we have this brand new airport that opens up and it's, you know, big and flashy and beautiful. And then the pandemic hits and there's like, you know, I don't even like, traffic is down 90, 95% or something at the new airport. And there's so much rhetoric locally in New Orleans, which is like, oh my gosh, this city will die if we don't have tourists. Like literally that is, you know, such a basis of our economy at this point. And um, 
I, you know, I will note how scholars like Lydia Pellet Hobbs are talking about the way in which extractive economies, which some people frame tourism as, that New Orleans and Louisiana's other large economy is around petrochemical production and extraction, right? So that these extractive industries, you know, have really been the basis of how um, New Orleans and a lot of Louisiana can like financially make it, or at least that's the argument. And then you have you know, COVID hit, tourists stop coming to the city. There's no, there's very little traffic at the airport and all of this, um, please start going out, you know, public, please, like, please go eat at our restaurants, locals, like order takeout, do what you can, you know, and that wasn't just in New Orleans, right? So much of the country's restaurants really felt this um, really like horrific strain and that so many places closed um, through the pandemic. And so that's both like understanding what a local economy can support, like what can locals really afford to do and eat out like in a city like New Orleans, but then also how much those economies had been created for and built and maintained by the expectation that there would be tourists to support them. Yeah, I mean, I I really like thinking about it in terms of an extractive economy because you don't really, I, at least I don't think about tourism in that way, but that's exactly what is happening is you are going and consuming something from another place and not giving anything back to it except money, which obviously is important. It just feels very unbalanced. (laughs) Right. Right. I think that's the concern. And, And we sort of talked about this earlier too, but the idea that like, you know, what economy, who is like, who is really served by that economy, right? And I think that this is some of the concerns. Even when you mentioned St. Rock Market, like I remember that, uh, and I, I don't actually, so I'm a geographer, but I don't work extensively on transit infrastructure or something. Some of my colleagues do, but um, even at St. Rock Market, right, when the St. Charles streetcar line was extended along um, St. Charles, you know, more into the Bywater and going into the Ninth Ward, it like stops around St. Rock would have to look exactly at a map where it does. Right. But here are all of these locals that increasingly post Katrina, particularly service workers are living farther and farther out of the tourist center, right? They're living like way out in the East. They're like farther and farther out. There's so much research showing that people are having trouble getting to work, right? Cause the buses are not as um, regular as they used to be. There's less reliable transit. And then you have this streetcar get, you know, line get extended, but it really runs from like the kind of tourist core of downtown into then like ending around St. Rock Market, you know, and that's not actually for locals, right? I mean, some locals ride the streetcar, great if it's on your very slim transit line, but the vast majority of people that are working in the service industry and making the service industry happen are not able to access these pieces of infrastructure that are built for tourist culture, right? So there's, there's these kind of, um, just lack of connection between what it would really take to continue to have like a thriving New Orleans and then supporting the people that make that happen. Those kind of disconnects. Yeah. And I think actually that's a good, good place to kind of turn over to the history of the land and grow that and, and the experience of fundraising with them versus the sort of glossy experience of the Besh foundation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I went to a bunch of Grodak's attempts to earn money, <laughs> and I this this all kind of started after I had already left the organization. I had been the assistant director there and on the founding team, and then I left and started studying all of this. Um, and one of the ideas is that Grodak wanted to try to earn revenue, have earned revenue as part of our portfolio of making it work as a nonprofit. And I'll say that a lot of that comes out of a concern and research on the way in which being entirely dependent on grants and on donors can have something like mission drift, right? So if you're entirely dependent on getting money from other people, you're also at the whim of those other institutions to get money. And this, a lot of this comes out of, you know, really wonderful thinking from groups like, um, Incite Women of Color Against Violence's book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, which is still just so rich with its offerings for these conversations. So Grodet's like, okay, we need to earn some of our own money. And so some of that came through produce sales, right? Like selling what is grown on the farm. But then another idea was like, okay, let's have a revenue of events. Let's do high-end dining events on the farm with guest chefs where we feature at least some, if not a lot of what we're growing seasonally on the farm and charge people to come, you know, and like have tickets for um, guests. And I kind of like this like slippage between is, are they guests or are they donors, right? Like who's coming to the farm to eat there? Are they guests? Are they donors? How do we talk about these people? Um, And I love the pushback. Actually, I remember in one interview, somebody who works at Grodat was just like, listen, we are adults. We are all guests on this farm. Like this is a teenager's farm. Like if you are an adult here, you are a guest, you know, like that was the framing. But um, this, so, so starting these dinners on the farm or farm dinners. And I had the experience of volunteering at a bunch of those. And I've worked, you know, in kitchens, mainly more like small kind of farm to table places. I worked at an amazing cafe in San Francisco's Mission District called Mission Pie that was connected with a um, pie ranch and Pescadero and a bunch of local high school students and teenagers would work at the farm and be paired with some of us adults. So I had had this experience of doing that kind of work and yet still feeling so um, just absolutely incompetent at throwing these dinners on the farm. And so, you know, I would sort of watch how this professionalized corporate group, somebody like the Best Restaurant Group or the Link Strajewski Foundation, Donald Link's, you know, restaurants um, would throw these like flawless events, like just beautiful, like, you know, incredibly competent, well-trained staff, just the resources they had around, um, you know, like how they were serving, right? Like literally the like systems that get set up to serve the meal, um, the plating system, how beautiful it all looks, right? So you would have that from the restaurant groups that Grodat was partnering with. And then there would be this like cadre of like random volunteers like me trying to like throw together (laughs) this event at the farm, which is completely outside of our expertise and knowledge. Right. Um, You know, and I just, I like have this memory of pouring some beautiful champagne. I can't even remember what it was now, but I couldn't pronounce the name of it. And my hand was shaking like so badly as I'm like pouring this into this diners because I knew that people had paid at least a hundred bucks a pop to be there, you know, sometimes quite a bit more. Um, and just feeling like this was not what the farm does, right? Like this is not what we do at Grota. Like it's not our expertise. We grow food. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot more to say about those kind of, tensions between being a place that grows food and then being a place that has like a really high end dinner to try to raise money. 
it does feel like there's a lot of pressure to raise money in a way that is fun and beneficial for the donors more so than anyone else. This is a critique that came up a lot, even from chefs, right? They would, I remember a couple of, these were some smaller scale, scale chefs, but several of them are women who have won, you know, huge culinary awards nationally. And a couple of them talked about these ideas around like, um, yeah, like we all want to have a good time. Let's throw an awesome party, right? And so this is sort of the like gala model. Um, the term that they've been using in New Orleans and maybe elsewhere is like dine around events where a bunch of chefs come in and cook like small plates or, you know, little appetizers. And then um, there's music and other events, right? Auctions, always auctions. Like that is a key feature of how nonprofit fundraising happens. Um, so they have these events and, you know, I remember this one chef in particular talking about like, this is great. Like we love a party. This is awesome. And why does it always have to be a party? Like, why don't we just give money to places? Like, why don't, like, why does it have to be these media-laden, splashy events that we're talking about, right? And I don't know. I mean, my answer to that is that it's marketing. These are marketing events, right? And and a lot of chefs are also very straightforward around that. Like, they do charitable activities in order to advertise their restaurants, right? A lot of times the formal foundations that get started come out of their marketing department, right? The people that start their foundations, I found this at quite a few of these, you know, new foundations that chefs have started. It's their marketing teams who launch their foundation, right? It's those people, that's their expertise, that's their experience. Um, And so they're not shy often around this, like, yes, like this is good press. This is good publicity for the restaurant, Sure, maybe we're giving back. Maybe we're really excited about that. And and we can guarantee that this is like good for our business. This is good financial investment. It seems as though these type of events tend to reiterate uh, power structures. Um, and I'm thinking really about when you're describing the Besh event and then bringing out the scholarship recipients to this crowd, sort of like presenting, you know, these people in need to this crowd of ostensibly wealthy people. Um, and then the description of the dinner at Grodat, where some of the people that came assumed that the hired um, waiters and, and things were in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. right. Um, really around, like, <laughs> really around like race, right. Really around race. And that, that is, so that's, yeah. Okay. So two points about this that I would love to talk about. The first is like this idea that, um, I'm kind of surprised at least in academic literature that there isn't more research about that moment when the beneficiaries or recipients of a gift of charity get trotted up on stage and like their experience of that, like, what is that like? Right. And so that was one of my intentions. Like, I just want to ask people as much as they're willing to share, what's this like, like, what are these dynamics like? And um, people talked with a great deal of depth and nuance and complexity around what that feels like and what that is and what it does, what it does for them, what it does for their, the foundation or the chef, you know, like those complications. 
so I just think that there's like a real need. There's, there's some research that's great about like representation in um, advertising campaigns, like, um, you know, flyers or uh, commercials on TV. Right. But like literally that we have all these public events. And when that happens, um, you know, when there's a testimonial from one of the participants or something, right. When this happens. And then to your other point, like at Grodat, right. Like Grodat is a farm that hires teenagers to grow food. And so the teenagers, oftentimes these events happen on school nights. So they're not there. There's also alcohol served and, you know, legal drinking age is 21. So, you know, teenagers are not at these farm dinners and yet like multiple times in interviews with people who had gone to the farm dinners as guests or donors, they would talk about like, Oh yeah, I really wish that I would have gotten to see more of the program participants. Like it would have been great to meet more of them. And I'm like more like that. Nobody was there. There were no teenagers at these events, but, but both that Grodat staff, even Grodat staff as being diverse across race, class, gender, sexuality, sexual expression, um, that the younger people that work at Grodat, like have full-time jobs there, were read as being beneficiaries or um, recipients of the program, even though they're not, right? But that that was the perception. And, I, and it, oftentimes this idea that suddenly there would be this group that come to a farm dinner that are overwhelmingly white in a space that is not a white space, right? It's majority um, African-American and Black, but also Vietnamese, um, also Latinx, and that that space is so different when a dinner on the farm happens and it's a majority white group. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about, um, I forget if it was the best foundation or not, but a 17 year old basically that won a scholarship and they they announced it to him in kind of a surprise party type way, but none of his family was there. There was no one there for him. Right. Right. Which seems wild to me. Right. right. Yeah. And as a young person, right. As a teenager, right. Like this is a minor, literally like a young person. And I think, yeah, there was this, um, when he won the scholarship, they had a very kind of a fancy party. He didn't know that he was going to win. Right. And there was like this big reveal at this private party at one of the best kind of private, um, event venues. And I remember, I don't know if they were there, but I know that the mayor was invited. I don't know if the mayor actually attended, but there was all this press there and the mayor was invited. And one of the former directors of the Besh foundation who actually left based on her experiences of racism and sexism she was the one that was just like, wait, why can he not have family there? Like, why isn't anybody there for him, you know, for this young winner? Um, and she was told, we don't know what type of people that the kids are going to bring, right? That the chefs and his winners are going to bring. So we don't invite them. Now that policy changed over time, but there was a lot of pushback around this idea of like, who is welcome in these spaces, you know, and I just remember the director saying, like, wait a second, we're going to invite the mayor of New Orleans, but not this kid's parents, right? Those tensions. Yeah. And I think that um, to kind of bring it back to the geographic portion of things, you know, that's that's very clearly an example of, of a power dynamic. You know, when you bring a, a child, essentially a child into a space like that, I'm an adult woman and I would be just shaking probably if I had to deal with all of that. Um, 
And then you talk about, you know, I really want to dive into sort of the history of the land. Um, you talk about the land that Grodat was built on, which is uh, City Park. And honestly, I did not know the majority of the history of City Park. And I think it is so valuable when you're thinking about the history of the land, specifically in philanthropic work. Great. Yeah. Thanks. I think it's really important too. And I think that so much of my own interest in geography as a discipline has really been sparked by spending so much time doing history of the land work in New Orleans and at Grodat. Um, I'm part of a collective that's done writing and other kind of scholarly and projects together around this idea inspired by this workshop that happens at Grodat, which does exactly what you're saying. It looks at the history of the space where there is now a youth farm and tries to understand the human and non-human elements that have made the geographic space what it is, literally like why the landforms look the way that they do today. Um, You know, it's so funny because I experienced City Park as a quote unquote natural space. Like I experience it as this like, you know, New Orleans ecosystem, which it is, and it is intensely human crafted, right? Like those canals were hand dug um, by the Works Progress Administration workers, right? Like the, the it is a designed park. It is not a, um, what do you say? Old growth <laughs> cypress forest, which it used to be. So, um, you know, just really understanding the ways in which humans have interacted with that place and changed it and what it means for us right now. Um, both from the history of indigenous removal from the space um, to the plantations, many plantations that were in City Park, right? There's there's a story that gets told about one plantation in City Park and new research coming out of um, University of New Orleans and a scholar there really naming, you know, a dozen plantations within the park that were operating um, and, you know, really documenting the lives of the enslaved that were there. And then the, the segregated park, right? So like even young people at, who work at Grodat talking about how their grandparents would say, oh, I couldn't go to that park when I was a kid, right? It was still segregated. Um, and that there was a swimming pool at City Park um, before desegregation that was closed, like so many pools across the United States, once um, public spaces formally were required to desegregate and the pool just got closed. So what does all of that mean, right, at Grodat today? And then really, I want to place directly something like um, both Teenagers Growing Food, right, a nonprofit that got developed after Katrina, and the farm dinners all happening on this land, which has the history that it has. And what does that mean? And I, and I do think that it immediately takes a conversation. And this is from Robin Wall Kimmerer's work, where she really talks about the idea that if you learn a land's history, it often contains the information about what to do going forward, what kind of healing the land needs, what kind of restoration, restoration, you know, is needed for the land. Um, and so taking those ideas, it's like really important to know the history. And then what does that mean today? How does that inform the way that Grodat raises money on the farm, right? Like what is that tells us something about the ways in which engagement in 2022, 2023, 2024 and onwards, what it can look like um, and how to be, you know, stewards of the land that bear the responsibility for moving into that future. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, 
when you talk about city park, obviously it starts, um, it's a swamp (laughs) more or less, you know, but it's, it's a home to quite a lot of indigenous peoples. Then it becomes a plantation or then it, it is forcibly made a plantation. Mm -hmm. Mm Um, and then the plantation is sort of willed to the city. So it's the, the land is taken and then made into something totally different than given again or or mm, taken given. and given yeah. there's just yeah, yeah there's so taken, many yeah. like mm-hmm. taken and given yep. um yep. to the city and then it's developed into this park but the park is not for everyone and so it's like you're saying having a farm in this space it's like how do we not recreate constantly be recreating these power dynamics that were so detrimental right on right on and i think that that's sort of the idea that like um looking at history is really important in order to understand the dynamics that are set up to get repeated right um and that how often at least you know so many of the nonprofit initiatives, charitable initiatives that even I've been involved with, don't seriously consider that question, right? Like, um, what does it mean to be here now in the place and understand those historical exclusions and power dynamics that have functioned in this space, right? Um, I'm just thinking about like what restaurants maybe ask that question, right? Which don't, right? Um, But obviously this applies to schools. It applies to, you know, um, any organization trying to do social change as well as places trying to make money, right? Like what does it mean to be in that space today? Yeah, I, this is always the point that I get kind of dumbstruck because I just start thinking about the chefs and, and cooks that don't necessarily have the money to do fundraisers like this, but are giving back to their communities in different ways, um, ways that are more based on history and, and the land that they're on. Um, did you interview anybody that you felt like was really trying to do that or, um, is a good example? Yeah. So many, so many people that, just engage in what I will broadly call politics, right? Like politics about the ethics of being a business, of running a restaurant, right? So they're thinking about anything from who they hire, as I mentioned, to the environmental impacts of their restaurants, to literally how much they charge, like how exclusive is this place, right? And then so much about workplace conditions, And I will say that something I heard from so many of those business owners was their frustration that they don't have more resources to know what to do, right? That they um, are trying to be a quote unquote ethical restaurant, right? And that there are so few places that really can share with them best practices, policies, and procedures. You know, here's the 101. Um, And that is particularly in my interviews with newer restaurants. And so, you know, in interviews with a place like Dookie Chase that has this, you know, old history, they have a, um, they have a, I don't know how to describe it, like a historical knowing and way of doing things that is so embedded within community. And Dookie Chase actually, in some of those interviews, they talked about other older restaurants in New Orleans 
um, even, you know, owned and operated by white families that also have a, they have a history, right? That, that they are not, um, unaware of that can be both a troubling history and one that means that there's a lot of relationships. So that's really different than a newer restaurant that started, you know, in the last since Katrina or something and is trying to find their way. And that so many of those organizations are saying, what do we do? And their own frustration that there aren't more research entities, um, labor rights groups that support restaurants in doing the kind of work that they want to do. So these are groups that are really critical. These are restaurant owners that are really critical of something like the, the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, as they get called, um, for not being a leader in labor standards, for not being a best practices in how to have a healthy, functional, environmental workplace, right? Um, but that those groups aren't actually giving they're not giving restaurateurs what they want and restaurant groups and what they want as far as, okay, like, I mean, they had the, I remember they would ask me pra- practical questions. People would always ask me like, okay, do you know, what does the research say? Like, is it better to like give restaurant workers formal time off, right? Like where they get paid time off or should we just increase, increase people's pay and then they can take like, you know, sick days when they need to or something like, is it paid vacation? Is it better just to have, and I'm sure that there's research from other industries, right? Like, that's on those topics, but there aren't entities that really directly focus on restaurants and restaurant groups to help support them. Um, and so they struggle, they like struggle to figure out, um, what to do. And they, they turn to like, you know, best practices done by restaurants in other parts of the country or their peers. Like I found this a lot in all across the spectrum, maybe not, maybe not a radical finding, but it's so important how much, chefs and cooks look to their peers for information about what they should do and how they should do it. And that's in their business operations. That's in how they run things, but it's also in their philanthropy. Like, Hey, look over here. Like this group is doing this. Like there's a so much replication um, for better or worse, right. Around like, Oh, this is the thing that we should be doing both internally or philanthropically. And so we're going to do that thing because these other famous chefs are doing it. Right? So there's all of this replication. Um, in marketing, I think they call it steal, 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 right? Like, but that, that that really is they look to, you know, who's successful in their industry to replicate and do that. Yeah, as opposed to um, you know, one of the things you mentioned is instead of trying to do your own thing, you know, why not support organizations that are already trying to do that thing? Or, you know, I, I think you're talking a little bit more about, um, you know, restaurant practices and, and fortunately we're getting a lot more organizations now that are helping with that. I think, um, larger organizations that are really focused on, you know, work-life balance and, and diversity and inclusion. But I also think about, you know, if, if you do want to give back to the community at large, why not just focus on something that is already in existence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that is a critique I heard both from, you know, small nonprofits working in New Orleans, like don't start a new community farm, right? Even grow that, right? Like don't start a new organization, like give money to our farm that's been in the lower nine for the last you know 20 years or whatnot, like fund us. And that's something that I heard even from philanthropic advisors nationally. So the group um, uh, that 
is I think they're through the James Beard Foundation and affiliated the Chefs Boot Camp, which changed which trains chefs on policy, like how to be involved in policy change. And in interviews with some leaders that are involved with those efforts, they were saying just how many, just that they advise chefs, like don't start your own organization. Most of the time that is going to become more burdensome than you can even imagine as far as the um, amount of resources, expertise that have to go into running a whole separate 501c3 nonprofit, like literally give grants and make grants and give money away, right? Like do that, you know? Um, and this was from somebody at the chef's boot camp who had named that the James Beard Foundation gets approached a, you know, surprising number of times by chefs who say, Hey, I started this philanthropic initiative. I can't manage it anymore for whatever reason, right? If it's logistically, if it's financially, like, will you all take it over? Like getting these asks, like, will you take it over? And they're like, we can't. So that they are advising, you know, restaurant groups not to start their own thing, but to give money away. And I'll say that once again, like so much of this is about marketing though. Um, You know, in interviews with foundations that said, yeah, but like we can give all this money away and they do. Somebody like Emerald Lagasse's foundation, which gives large amounts of money away, both in New Orleans, but also in other parts of the country, but that it's a different brand proposition to have your name on something, right? Like you can have your name on this garden, right? There are gardens that Lagasse has sponsored or kitchens, but what if, and, and at least from some of my interviews with them, like this idea that, um, you know, there is a desire, at least from some people on the board, to have signature programs that are, that they really own, quote unquote, that the Legacy name really owns. And so I think that that, you know, there is a different marketing proposition between giving money away and maybe getting credit for it or maybe not versus starting your own foundation, which has your name on it. And a lot of them do, at least in New Orleans, like so many of the chef foundations are literally like, the Shia Barnett Foundation, right? The Link Strajewski Fund, like they have the actual names embedded within it. That's a very different, um, the public perception of that is going to be very different than grants, which you, you have less control over how that's named and presented. Yeah. Um, gosh, we're coming like to the end of the book now <laughs> and, and I'm sad, but um, I guess I just want to ask, you know, this book kind of repeatedly has these themes of geography and giving and power structures and, and gender and equality and all these things that we need to think about. And then you ask a question at the end, which is why do we continue to think in terms of giving? Can you just talk a little bit about what, what that means and especially in the context of, of your research in the field, like why are we thinking about this in terms of giving instead of, you know, who is giving and, mm-hmm. and where is it being given and, and all these other questions? Right. I, I, I really like to come to the idea that, that there are just other ways to redistribute wealth than requiring on private foundations and private individuals to redistribute it, right? Because we know we're in this context of vast inequality. Um, we know that there are social problems that are not being solved. And so, you know, and, and I, I have spent my entire professional and academic career trying to understand what makes social change and what changes inequality, right? Like, and I don't have all the answers. Like, I'm like, I don't know. 
I do know some things, right? But but this idea that it's complicated. And I think that we, you know, to come to some of those questions are around, okay, what does it look like for there to be less emphasis on private philanthropy and more emphasis on social provisioning that comes through the city or the state, right? Just to ask those questions, right? And these are these are political issues, right? It really is about who do we believe are the best entities to address social inequalities, right? Um, so what does it mean if there was more, um, you know, either tax revenue, money circulating through formal state-based systems or city-based or government systems, right? What does that mean? Um, I also look at something like James Ferguson's work on the idea of the rightful share. So unconditional cash transfers, right? Give people money, right? And how that is, why there is often so much um, tension, discomfort with the idea of just giving people money. That there is, and you know, I would say that I understand this in the United States is like there is such a deeply embedded, um, you know, work ethic, individualism and work ethic. I'm from a farming family. Like that is our bread and butter, right? Like um, it is, it is noble to, to work hard and earn money for that. So what does it look like if people just receive a rightful share of a country's wealth? Um, No questions asked, right? You know, I think of Sylvia Federici's work around the commons and the idea of of the commons as shared space um, and is offering very different possibilities than extractive capitalism or advanced capitalism, how we want to frame it. So just to me, right, like opening up these questions and not getting so stuck in only thinking about philanthropy. And this is something, too, that that comes to me through. I think it's maybe Erica Bornstein's work, but this idea that certain solutions become possible in certain moments, right? So like right now, the solution is like, well, we need celebrities to like start big foundations and like correct for our social ills, you know, and we need to buy things, right? Like we as consumers need to like buy ethical things. We need to vote with our fork. We need to vote with our visa card, whatever it is, right? Those configurations are like unique to this moment in time as that is what is seen as possible. So what other ways are possible, right? And, and you know, so much of this coming out of like, even when I was talking about Insight Women of Color of Violent, Against Violence's work, like that there have been these deep threads through feminist work like that, um, women of color feminist work to say, okay, well, what other possibilities are there? Clyde Woods, who I cite so much in the book, you know, talks about very different visions for development coming from freedom struggles, right? And from freedom movements that he, I I love this because, you know, Clyde Woods and I both have a background in development, thinking about international development. So that was really so much of his lens as I understand it. And then you have Clyde Woods as a historian saying, okay, but what if the vision of development looked really, really different in Mississippi and in the South and in New Orleans than what a you know more dominant white lens of development had looked like. What if what if we have a freedom vision for for development? So you know just to me it's it's these questions, Kelly, around just coming to the idea that maybe there are possibilities for how to address inequality that aren't just about giving and receiving and philanthropy. It's really beautifully said. Thank you. Um, 
Do you have anything that you want to add or touch on before we wrap things up? No, I'll just appreciate you. It's so wonderful to be in conversation with you. And I love your, um, from what I know about your history, your investment in New Orleans and your experience as a pastry chef. And um, it's just, it's exciting to talk with somebody who has such intimate knowledge and in a way too, right, that I'm an outsider. I haven't been a chef, right? And so I love to be in conversation with you where you bring that, yeah, that expertise and your generosity of interest in all of it is really beautiful. Well, thank you so much. It's been a just really wonderful talking to you today. Thanks.